Well, all right. Yo, we have made it to Ephesians. I'm so excited that we are getting back into some New Testament letters because there there is so much to be learned and uncovered. And uh, I want to thank y'all for um, listening to and sharing and enjoying the creation series, or at least I hope you enjoyed it. Uh, man, it, the the amount of you know listeners and viewers was absolutely great. I honestly expected to get a lot less viewers compared to like the Roman series, just because when we talk about Genesis 1 and creation, for a lot of people, those types of questions don't really cross their mind. You know, the various views on what's going on in Genesis and how that applies, you know, to them in their everyday life. Uh, is not an everyday topic that many people think about. But I know for me and my walk with God, there was a point in time when I was confronted with opposing views and uh, people and arguments that were attempting to derail me and many other believers from their faith because of the things in Genesis. And so I hope that the creation series, at least for one person, was something that was profitable and valuable. And I, I hope that definitely helps you in your study and in your walk with God. But man, we are going into the letter of Ephesians. And similar to our Roman series, if y'all were here, you know, a few months ago, you know, your your regular listeners, you know that the Roman series, it was a very, very long series. And we're going to be doing kind of the same thing in Ephesians, where we take our time breaking down the things that Paul is saying um, if you've gone through a lot of the episodes of Romans with me, you know that sometimes we can spend an entire episode on like one verse. <laughs> and when it comes to this series on Ephesians, uh, that's not going to change much. Uh, I will tell you that today we are going to get through a few verses, but there will definitely be breaks throughout these episodes because I want to take time to talk about other biblical topics that I've been interested in, uh, things that I've been studying, one of which being the Gospel of John and how Jesus is portrayed as the dwelling place of God and how Jesus is portrayed at the temple. It's actually so, so amazing. Um, another topic that has been on my mind, and I'm sure a lot of your minds and culture's mind, is the topic of abortion and the ideology that is behind the pro-abortion movement and why when it's taken to its logical conclusion, it simply fails. Um, that is a topic that I know is a very hot topic, but it needs to be talked about, and I'm sure at some point through this series, we will talk about it. But for now, we're going to set our sights on Ephesians and see where it leads. And before we do, I just want to remind y'all that uh, don't forget to share this podcast with your friends and family. If you have friends and family on social media or in your life, and you know they, they're needing theological podcast or videos or things to watch or they just want to learn or maybe they're not close to God at all and uh, you know you want to find something to share with them share this podcast with them it may help it may not but at the very least you know it gives them an opportunity to hear another perspective and hopefully a perspective that helps them grow or helps them learn but if you uh, are just new to the podcast and how we kind of do this in the series typically what we do is we'll read through the entire verse or passage of things that we're going to be breaking down. Um, today's going to be a little weird. We're going to be breaking down verse 1 and 2, mostly, and then we're going to be doing a very, very sky-high bird's-eye view overview of uh, verses 3 through 14, and then we'll break those down more. So I'm just going to start by reading verses 1 through 2 at the start of 
the first chapter of Paul's letter to the Ephesians. And we're going to break it down and see where that leads. So verse 1, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So the first thing that we need to observe and set straight when it comes to any form of written communication is who is this communication written to? Who is this sent to? And, and as far as the Bible goes, a lot of times it seems pretty straightforward, at least when we look at the letters that Paul wrote, because Paul's letters are are named. Like that's the title of the letters that, you know, we see in our biblical canon. Uh, you know, for instance, the Galatians, that's the letter sent to the people in Galatia, the Philippians, people sent in Philippi, Romans, it was sent to the churches in Rome, so on and so forth. And 99.9% of the time, we would be correct in attributing the title of those letters to its intended recipients. However, for Ephesians, I think we need to approach this with a bit more care. Because the first thing that we can point out is the type of people that this letter is intended for. If we look at um, multiple translations, ESV, King James Version, um, NASB, and I'm sure many more, it says that Paul is sending this letter to the saints who are in Ephesus. The saints. Now, unfortunately, this word comes up short for its purpose of fully describing the Greek word that it is translated from. And that's unfortunate because we miss out on a, a deep theological background that Paul is trying to evoke here. So the word that gets translated the saints in Greek is the word hagios, which just means holy. And for something to be holy, uh, first and foremost, it's an attribute of God. God is holy. That's an attribute that comes from God himself. And God is defined as unique. He's one of a kind, uh, by virtue of his status as the creator and source of all reality. You know, we see something like Isaiah chapter 6 and verse 3. He says, holy, holy, holy is Yahweh God the mighty. So first and foremost, when something is holy, we first need to point to the fact that holiness is an attribute of God. It's something that God is. He's the full embodiment of holy. Holy comes from God. But then we can also point out that throughout the biblical story, there's another group of people that are given this attribute of holiness, and that is Israel. Israel is called to be a holy nation in Exodus 19 verse 6, so that when they are faithful to the covenant and have access to God's presence in the temple, they can become holy ones. You know, Leviticus chapter 11, verse 44 says this. It says, I am Yahweh your God, and you will make yourselves holy, and you shall be holy ones, for I am a holy one. So there is something very unique and important about the status of being holy. First and foremost, holiness describes God's perfection and one of a kind nature. And that's important because that status of holiness gets transferred to his followers when they give their life to Christ. So at the start of this letter, Paul is writing to not just a, a group of saints, 
I think that word, unfortunately, at least in our culture, um, may have some other things tied into it. Paul is writing to a group of holy people, people that are holy because of the work of Christ Jesus. And this is very crucial to point out because saints can infer a righteousness because of the good works they do. Like when you think of a saint, you say, oh, that person is such a saint. What are you saying? You're saying that, oh, this person is good. Well, why are they good? Because there are works and things that they are doing that we see as good. And we give them a status of being a saint because of good things that they do. And that status of being a saint, at least in our culture today, is not tied hand in hand with following God and giving God your worship. It's just something that follows from good actions, regardless of what your theological beliefs are. But the the phrase holy ones, someone being holy, this has deep biblical roots in something being seen as holy, not because of the things that they do, but because of the God that inferred his status of holiness onto these people. And because of that, we are seen as holy ones in Christ because of Christ, not because of any good works that we may do. So that's important to understand that Paul is not writing to the saints as we understand it, but he is writing to the holy ones in Ephesus. But the second thing that we need to point out before getting any further into this letter is that it's actually very likely that this letter was not written to just the churches in Ephesus. This is important because the context of who Paul is writing to should inform our understanding of Paul's intended meaning on any letter that he's writing. And one thing we can learn is that the earliest manuscripts of the letter of the Ephesians does not actually have the phrase in Ephesus. Now, I want to read this again because in verse 1 it says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God to the saints who are in Ephesus. But the earliest manuscripts that we know from modern scholarship does not have the phrase in Ephesus. And this would indicate that this was actually a widespread letter that was sent to a more general audience of followers of Christ and not specifically just to the churches in Ephesus. And a few reasons why they also come to this conclusion is that Paul spent the most time in Ephesus than in any other church city that he planted. And you can read this throughout um, the Acts of the Apostles. And it's odd to also see that Paul does not mention any names. He does not give any greetings or welcomes to the particular people that he would have spent years with. And we can see that this is odd because in the letter to the Roman people, if you remember at the end of our uh, series on the letter of Romans, Paul greets a ton of people. In chapter 16, Paul is greeting people left and right and left and right, but Paul hadn't even visited that church yet. So it's weird that if this letter was meant to be sent to the churches in Ephesus, that Paul wouldn't have mentioned any names or greeted anyone since he spent a ton of time there beforehand. But also, if you look through various Bible translations, you'll see that some of them will have a, a little footnote that will point out this discrepancy, and it'll say that 
the phrase in Ephesus is not mentioned in the earliest manuscripts. And I want to read a quick quote concerning this from New Testament scholar Michael Gorman. He says this in his book, Apostle of the Crucified Lord. He says, quote, The earliest and best New Testament manuscripts omit the phrase in Ephesus from chapter 1, verse 1. It is quite possible, then, that this document was intended as a circular letter and that believers in Ephesus were not the only intended audience. The contents of Ephesians seems to support such a theory. There is very little hint of any specific situations being addressed or of one concrete community that's envisioned. The exhortations and warning to avoid doctrinal error seem quite general. Furthermore, the text assumes that the recipients have not had direct contact with Paul, as you see in verse or chapter 1, verse 15. This suggests that an audience other than, or at least wider than, Ephesus, where Paul spent considerable time. It is likely that this circular letter became associated with Ephesus because it was intended to circulate throughout the province of Asia, of which Ephesus was the capital and epicenter from which Paul's gospel spread through the province, end quote. So that is all important. I know we took some time on that, but it's very important that we understand who Paul is writing to and where this letter is being sent. So it seems that Paul is writing a general letter to the churches around the area of Ephesus. And this is a general letter, as we'll see later on throughout the chapters, of unity, of being one body, and of one mind. And you can imagine how important that would be. How important it would be that not just a group of believers in a particular city or a particular neighborhood are unified of one mind, but that believers throughout an entire, what we would consider a state, be be unified together. And man, isn't this a message that our Christian community could learn today? Because it seems like we have all of these denominations and everyone say says that they're all a part of Christ and that they're brothers and sisters, but they all say that each other are doctrin, doc, doctrinally wrong. Some even to the point where they claim that others are sinning if they are not following the traditions that they hold. And man, this letter circulating around Ephesus, man, if only our, if only modern believers today could read this and not point to other people and say, see, you should be unified with me, but point to themselves and say, where am I not unified with the rest of the body of Christ? Because Paul's writing this to the holy ones the ones that are holy because of Christ, not because of any good works that they do. Paul's not writing this to people who he thinks are holy because they follow a certain man-made tradition. Paul's not writing this to a group of Jews that he says is holy simply because they follow the law or follow circumcision or follow the Sabbath. He's not writing this just to a group of, of Gentiles that he's saying are holy because they reject all of that. He's writing this to the entire body of Christ throughout this entire province. And he is saying that you all are holy because of one person, and that is Jesus Christ, who is the head of the body. And man, if we could just live this out today. How much more unified would the body of Christ be? Something to think about. On to verse 3. Paul says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Now, there are two important things to point out 
One is Paul's blessing to God, and the second is the spiritual blessing that God gives us. Let's start with the latter, because first we are told that God has blessed us in Christ. And this is an important distinction to make, because we are blessed only because we are in Christ. So it is those who are in Christ who are blessed, not those who get blessed and then come to Christ. This distinction will play an important role when we dive into the topics of predestination and election, because the predestination and election view that some hold, especially um, the Calvinist uh, denominations, claim that we are blessed beforehand or we're chosen beforehand, and then we enter into Christ because we were chosen beforehand. But this is just one instance here where Paul says that we are blessed because we're in Christ. We're not blessed and then found in Christ. We are blessed because we are in Christ, similar to how the holy ones are holy because of Christ, not because of anything that preceded the blessing that Christ gave. That's very important for us to understand. So what Paul is saying is that those who are in Christ, his followers, automatically receive these spiritual blessings. But what exactly is this spiritual blessing? Well, the phrase spiritual blessing tends to be taken as a blessing that is spiritual, so one that is not physical in nature. However, the phrase spiritual blessing within this context seems to be speaking more towards the source of the blessing, not the metaphysical nature of the blessing. What I mean by that is, it's speaking about the source of the blessing, saying that the Spirit of God is the one issuing out these blessings. But whatever these blessings are, these are not blessings that man can give. But these are blessings that only come from the Spirit of God, which is what God just told us in verse 3, that God the Father blessed us in Christ. So, okay, so we have spiritual blessings. Well, what are these blessings? Is it money? Is it health? Is it wealth? What's going on here? Well, luckily for us, Paul lays out these blessings in the rest of this chapter. And we will dive into these verses more deeply in a future episode. But for now, I want to skim through verses 4 through 14. And I want you, while I'm reading this and if you're reading along, I want you to point out if you can find what blessings Paul has sprinkled in here in this really long run-on sentence that is Ephesians 4 through 14. See if you can point out what those blessings are. Starting in verse 4. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the Beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ, as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, 
the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Ephesians uh, chapter 1 has, I think it's the longest run-on sentence in the entire Bible. It's like 15 verses of run-on sentence. If you go through and read it, it's just comma after comma after comma. It's In Greek, it's a full run-on sentence. I think in English, though, they add periods, but in Greek, it's a full run-on sentence. So I'm glad we got through that. But back to the blessings. In your head, think of how many blessings you pointed out there like in really important blessings that you just pointed out in what we just read. I was able to count, let's see, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. Eight blessings. Uh, the first one would be that God chose us. He elected us. And we see this in verse four. In verse five, here's another blessing. We are adopted as God's children. In verse six, God has blessed us with grace. In verse 7, he's blessed us with redemption. At the end of verse 7, he blesses us with forgiveness of sin. In verse 9, we are blessed with the knowledge of God's secret purpose. That's important. In verse 11 through 12, we are blessed with a hope of a future inheritance. And in verses 13 and 14, we are blessed with the presence of God's Spirit. And I, I don't know about you, but these blessings are far greater than anything we could ever hope to fulfill with our own ability. And what what blows my mind is that many believers today think that God's blessings are meant to be physical in nature, that his blessings are meant to be things like monetary goods or material goods. And maybe I shouldn't say most believers. Maybe I should say a lot of modern pastors preach that God's blessings are things that only enrich your physical life, whether it's health or wealth or material goods or fame or popularity or whatever it may be, we're always told by modern Christianity that these are the blessings that God wants to give. And this is unfortunate. It's unfortunate because when we look at who Paul is writing to, Paul is writing to a group of believers who undoubtedly faced persecution for following Jesus. And when Paul thought of the blessings that were essential to their faith, blessings that were essential to their well-being, blessings that only God could give, Paul did not mention material goods. Paul didn't say that God was going to bless you with money or with power or with health even. In a time where your belief in Christ would cost you your status and your honor, you would be shamed, you would lose your job, you could lose your home and get kicked out of the city, you could be exiled, and worst of all, you could lose your life. And with all of that in mind, God's followers, the followers of Jesus, were not crying out for blessings of material goods. Paul didn't look at their situation or even his situation in prison and say, man, what I really could use right now is some money. What I really could use right now is a new car or a nice house. No, no, no. What Paul's thinking about is, oh, the blessings that are really needed that God can really give is hope, is grace, is redemption, is his spirit, is forgiveness of sins. Isn't that enough? 
Aren't those blessings enough? I don't know about you, but man, when I would read this passage, a lot of times I would look at this and go, those are blessings? Like, I'm struggling to eat. I don't know how I'm going to pay my bills, but those are blessings. And it's really unfortunate that I myself and I'm sure many other believers would look at these the, the list of these blessings and, down, and downplay them. As if the blessings that are laid out here are somehow incomplete. As if Paul missed one. As if Paul just wasn't thinking right and he really should have added in some extra blessings that could materially help me. Imagine this. Imagine if a pastor in today's modern Christian church gave a sermon about blessings and how God wanted to bless you. And he said that you could be the most devout follower of Christ to ever walk the earth. And God's going to bless you because of it. If you have faith, God is going to bless you. But you're you're probably still going to be poor. You may still be hungry. You may still be needy. You may have health concerns that unfortunately don't get healed. But don't worry because God is actually blessing you through it all. Well, how is he blessing me, pastor? And the pastor would say, well, not with material goods and money. But the thing, the blessings that are actually important, God is giving you the blessing of grace and the knowledge of the mystery of Jesus. And God is giving you blessings of forgiveness of sin. And I, I feel like I just have to ask myself, how many Christians today could honestly say that they would be fully content and overfilled with joy with the blessings that God gives here in this passage that we just read? If you were told that the only blessings that God is going to give you, no matter what you're struggling with in life, no matter how hard it is for you to pay your bills, no matter what health concerns you have, no matter what is going on in your life, if if I were to tell you that the only blessings that God would ever give you are the ones that we just read, grace, redemption, freedom from sin, and inheritance in his kingdom, his spirit, would, would that be enough for you? Would you be overjoyed? Would you have peace? And that's a tough reality to ponder. But honestly, it's a true reality. And it's a reality that we should be thankful for because monetary goods die with you. But grace, adoption as God's children, and inheritance in his kingdom, those are eternal. Those are the blessings that we should be crying out for and be thankful for every single day. So when you're going throughout your day and you're praying and you're in conversation with God and you're asking for blessings and you're praying that that God will bless you, try this. Try to stop expecting God to bless you with monetary goods. And try to be thankful that God has already blessed you if you are a follower of Christ with grace and redemption and forgiveness of sins. Because that's what Paul thought was most important. And that is what God thinks is most important. And this is not to say that God does not want to or will not bless you with material goods. Because he certainly can and he certainly has and he certainly may do that for you. But that is not his top priority. His top priority is to make sure that when your life on this earth is over that you will be with him in his arms, in his kingdom walking into the inheritance that he has already blessed you with.
And with that, we'll end this episode. <laughs>